It's a how-to manual, just six pages long, written by a sixth grader in Brooklyn named Peter. He handed it in to his teacher three years ago. She still has it. I keep it on my bulletin board by my refrigerator in case I, both for amusement and also in all, you know, in case I ever need to consult it. The manual gives step-by-step instructions on how to protect yourself from all sorts of unwanted visitors. That's all sorts of unwanted visitors, says the teacher, Melissa Cantor. The, there are a number of them. The, the first is the wolf man. Mm-hmm. Uh, then come aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's one which is sort of a, it's kind of a subtle digression, but it's, it's along the same lines. It's if you have a bad dream. Which in a way is an unwanted visitor. It's, it so is, really. It really is. And, um, and the final one is dinosaurs. If you have an unwanted visitor, dinosaur? Right. The chapter on the Wolfman begins with this little pep talk. First thing it says, why would the Wolfman come to your house, out of all the houses in Brooklyn? But if you're afraid, here's what you do. Number one, sleep with a glass with water in it. Number two, Peter tells you to close the blinds, get under the covers, put a fan on. Number three... If he comes in, put covers over your whole body. Don't move. Like he'll never suspect you're there. Exactly. This is what to do if a wolfman with a low IQ comes to your house. (laughs) Uh, Four. If you want the satisfaction of killing him, take the glass and splash the water in his face. Um, then Then it switches a little. It says B. Wait, wait. We've gone from one, two, three, four, and now we're going B, C, D. Right. What's interesting is, is that is that one instinctively knows, even in the sixth grade, that if there's going to be a how-to, there are going to have to be steps and sub-steps. Yes. I think in sixth grade, I don't know if this is a digression or not. It is a digression. Can I digress or should I stick to the text? No, no, no. Go, digress away. Um, in sixth grade, I think they, there's a general sense of kind of that the universe has an order and, and they know a few key terms that guide that order, but some of the specifics sort of escape them. And uh, so, for example, I had a sixth grader who wrote a story and I knew it was a very, very steamy story because um, when when he went to give it to me, he was surrounded by all of his friends who were kind of giggling madly and, and sort of quite shocked. And he, he sort of gave it to me and then raced out of the room. And the story involved a man and a woman who were having a romantic evening in front of the fire and there was soft music playing and Finally, to show that this was truly a romantic evening, the um, the man um, takes a bottle of wine, white wine, it was very clear, white wine that they've been drinking, and pours it all over the woman, um, which is, <laughs> I guess, is the sign that, that this is amorous. The kid had the props right. The fire, the soft music, the wine. He just wasn't clear on how everything fit together. Which, in a way, happens all through this how-to. It's a hodgepodge. The dinosaur advice has images lifted straight from Jurassic Park. The Wolfman section has one practical piece of advice taken, really, from any middle-class dinner table in Brooklyn. After you kill the Wolfman, it says, If you think your mom will get mad from all the blood, take seltzer and paper towels and pat it. Then, scrub. Why do you think he did this as a how-to? Like, what is it about the how-to form that would be so attractive? Um, I think that the how-to form makes it seem like the world will follow certain rules. 
And if you follow certain rules, you'll be safe. And and it puts it, I think, in your control because you obviously you have no control of of over whether or not the wolfman or aliens come to your house. The how-to form. It's ingrained in us. It's part of what we are. How we make sense of the universe. Consider this story. In 1696, in England, the law changed and suddenly people in England could publish whatever they wanted without getting it approved first by the king and his censor. And so there was this explosion of publishing. And within just a few decades, the single most popular kind of book, as soon as people could sell and buy any kind of books they chose, these were how-to books. In particular, how-to books written to teach people, mostly women, how through education, self-control, and hard work, any family could better itself, could enter what we come to think of now as the middle class. And here's where it gets interesting. The advice books on how to become middle class came before the existence of an actual middle class. People followed the how-to instructions, bettered themselves, and the middle class emerged. We would not be who we are today without how-to. There's a straight line from those 18th century books of personal betterment to every Tony Robbins infomercial, every Jane Fonda workout video, every Martha Stewart magazine article. Stuff that gives you both step-by-step instructions and a motivational dream. A dream that you can transform yourself into a different person. Which brings us to today's show. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different stories on that theme. Today's show, how-tos. And what happens during a how-to. And what our how-tos say about us. Act one of today's show, Roadrunner, in which I teach one of our regular contributors, Sarah Val, how to drive. And I find out that a simple how-to is never as simple as you think. Act two, how to date a black girl, brown girl, white girl, or halfie. Juno Diaz explains what to do with the government-issued cheese in the refrigerator when you bring a date over to the house. Act 3. How to increase your value as a person. An act in which we try to tackle the biggest possible how-to we could think of. How to make your life worth more. And we get answers. Real, practical answers. Stay with us. Act 1. Roadrunner. We don't even agree on where this story begins. As far as I was concerned, it was just another how-to story. Our contributing editor, Sarah Val, wanted to learn how to drive, and I would teach her in two quick lessons. For me, it wasn't even about driving. It was about fear. Nothing scares me more than driving. Nothing. I can't even ride a bike without mangling my digits and hitting parked cars. I've always been terrified that I'd get behind the wheel and it would be a big Shangri-La song with people screaming, Look out! Look out! Look out! Look out! Somehow, I didn't mention this to Ira before we began. And this, I think, is how it usually goes with any how-to. A how-to seems like the most rational, orderly thing in the world. You know, you do step one, you do step two, step three, follow the diagrams and the instructions before you know it. You know, creme brulee or the toy train set is assembled, or you're a more effective, convincing public speaker, whatever. But in fact, the logical step-by-step process is just a veneer of civilization, coding the vast paranoia that is not knowing, and the process of learning itself, which is inherently irrational. Which brings us to the car guys. Hey, hello? Tom and Ray? Yeah, who's this? Is this Ira? Yeah, it's Ira. Hi, Ira. How are you guys doing? 
We're doing great. What's up, man? These, of course, are Tom and Ray Maliazzi, host of NPR's Car Talk. I called them up to ask for practical advice on how to teach Sarah how to drive. There isn't one person in 20,000 that knows the correct way to take a left turn. The rule simply is you continue in the lane you're driving in until you get into what is the right lane of the lane you're turning to, right? Now, what happens when a car is coming in the other direction, which also wants to take a left turn? Got it? Yeah, got so it. You're going what was I thinking? Tom and Ray articulated rules of the road so obscure that no one actually follows them. And there's not one driver in 50,000 who conforms to that rule. Wait a second, and you're saying that I should teach her this way and not the way that every driver in no, America does it? No, you should teach it? her the way that every driver does it because she'll be assassinated her first day out. <laughs> yeah, boy. At least no useful tips on steering or shifting or traffic. But the sages of Kartak Plaza did have one prediction about what happens when you teach someone to drive. You have to be aware that things in your nature that you heretofore have kept secret from the entire world will be divulged to this person. Now, wait a second. Now, are you telling me, are you giving me this advice out of personal experience on either of your parts? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Keep us posted, Ira, and I'll, I look forward every Friday to hearing you on that science show. That you <laughs> Wrong Ira, you knucklehead. Oh, boy. When people ask me why I don't drive, I usually say, my sister drives. And to most people, that sounds like such a loony idea. But my sister and I are twins. And when you're a twin, there can be a very clear division of labor. I did the mental things, she did the physical ones. I learned to read before she did, she learned to ride a bike years before I did. Driving was her jurisdiction. Criticizing her driving was mine. After one humiliating attempt to learn when I was 16, I simply blocked the possibility out of my mind. I'm never going to drive, like I'm never going to murder anyone, like I'm never going to like Celine Dion. It was that huge. So comes the day when Sarah's supposed to go down to the Department of Motor Vehicles to get her learner's permit, and she stops by, and I'm still thinking that we're just doing this little radio story, not realizing that, in fact, this is her greatest phobia. And I notice that she has this look on her face that I can only describe as pre-throw-up, as she nervously flips through her copy of the Illinois State Driving Rules. So looking at the second I opened it, and this has been going on for days, you know, the second I opened it, I have been extremely anxious. It was like opening it up, boom. I was a whole, uh, I was a, another person. I had just been tapping my fingers and nervous, and it's like I just, it's like I just had 12 gallons of coffee, you know, and um, am I sounding like completely nervous and out of control and scared? Yeah. So, yes. um Good. I'm communicating that. You don't view you don't view the car as something that you can you don't believe you don't believe in your heart that you can actually control a car. Nope. But that but that's the part that you're gonna learn through this process. Uh I don't know. So I'm I just so feel like this just isn't about me. What do you mean it isn't about you? This is for the car class. 
What are you talking about? The car class is a specific class of people. Yeah. Whom the world is set up for, whom the American world is set up for. Um, the car class is the elite. The car class is the upper class. The car class the has car- all the power, makes all the rules. The car class occasionally throws a few dimes of taxes our way so that the non-car class can, you know, get places on the train. I mean, the car class burns fossil fuels. The car class, you know... So you feel like the fact that I'm encouraging you, like, that you'll feel good if you can drive, you just feel like... I'm joining a cult. Yeah. One of us. One of us. Listening back to that conversation now, I am pained. I don't know who that humorless fanatic was. Though, in my defense, I was grasping for any reason to get out of this driving mistake. Let me assure you that I care about fossil fuels precisely as much as everyone else in America. Which is to say, not at all. Okay, one more thing. Yeah. I told you it was my biggest fear. You have to tell me yours. Women drivers. <laughs> so, Sarah passes the test to get a learner's permit. I rent a car, and we head out to an elementary school parking lot. Okay. What do I do? Well, this, my, should my should my feet be touching those pedals? It should be. They should be able to. So, uh, so what you want to do is first you want to just get situated and adjust the mirrors and the seat. So push up the seat. Good. Can you well, reach both wait, pedals? Wait. How, how 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 much should my leg be bent? I was asking a lot of questions, not just because I wanted to know, but because I was stalling. She asked about the mirror, as if reflective glass were this crazy newfangled gadget. What am I supposed to see out of that? The- uh, you, you, what you want to see is kind of like you want to see the, the side of the car just a little bit, and then you want to see what's what's next to the car. Okay. Okay? Okay. You know, this is the thing about a how-to. You find yourself explaining things, putting words into sentences that you never imagined you would ever be doing. After more stalling than we can possibly recount here on the radio, there was no avoiding the moment I'd been dreading since I was 15. Okay. I want you to just uh, give it a little bit of gas. I want you to be mindful there's only one car in this parking lot. I, I don't want us to hit it. So to do that, you're going to keep going to the right. I want you to just give it a little bit of gas. <laughs> <laughs> I should just say that we just kind of lurched forward, like one of those scenes in Star Trek where they're hit by, you know, a spaceship. And then we drove in circles. Literally, circles. And it was a surprisingly nonverbal kind of how-to. Mostly I just watched, while Sarah got a feel for the car's controls. How much spin on the steering wheel actually turned the car. How much pressure on the gas pedal yielded how much speed. And I have to say, she was a natural. You are so good at this. I'm so, I'm, I'm so impressed. Sarah, you're doing so well. All right, here's the tricky turn, though. Don't hit the handicapped people. <laughs> It was like learning to play the piano, 
how in the beginning you look at your hands as much as you look at the music. The hard thing isn't decoding the notes, it's doing it in time without stopping to think about every little move. I'm turning left and lurching and turning right a little bit and now I'm turning left a lot. After half an hour in which I played the driving equivalent of chopsticks, Ira took over the wheel again to take us to the next parking lot. I watched the streets while he drove and suddenly they looked so narrow and fraught with danger. My beautiful city of orderly boulevards and responsible fellow citizens now looked like some film noir back alley where you can't trust a soul. Where a dame's pretty smile gets you nothing but the jaws of life. Where even the parked cars looked like they were packing heat. And they didn't care who knew. Meanwhile, in the real world, I looked for a bigger parking lot to practice driving in. And then we drove past Rose Hill Cemetery. Perfect. Like a big deserted public park with long winding roads, no cars, nobody around, nobody we could hurt anyway. Okay, I think we're clear. Huh? Yeah. Sarah drove on snow. She handled intersections. I thought she was doing great, but then she started to act very, very strange. I don't feel like myself right now. What are you feeling? I'm having an outer body experience. I'm not really nervous anymore, but I'm not really concentrating. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's reassuring. My voice sounds different. Does my voice sound different? I don't sound like myself right now, do I? In anyhow, too, there are the actual skills that you're learning. And then there's the fact that by learning these skills, you're actually becoming, you know, in a small way, a different person. And during the how-to, there's this period where you have the skills, but you do not yet see yourself as a kind of person who has those skills, as the changed person. And this period, it can last for hours. It can last for years, really. Forever. There's a car behind me. Well, that's where it's going to (laughs) be. Who said they could come here? Signal left. I can't. Signal. I can't. Signal. Signal. That turn left. Okay. Slow down. No, no. Slow down. Not so much gas. Good. I'd sort of forgotten there'd be other cars around. I had problems of my own without worrying about the other drivers. Not just their actions. Their actual existence. And this brings us to the part of our story that we think of as the frightening near misses. A word about this next recording before we play it for you. Remember, please, driving is my greatest fear. And it's not a totally irrational fear. There are things about driving that are, in fact, dangerous, like learning to pass another car without hitting it. So what happens when you confront the scariest part of your greatest fear? Well, I don't know about you, but I laugh. A lot. It was like that the first time, when I was 16 and my sister tried to teach me to drive. I got behind the wheel and started giggling so maniacally and so uncontrollably for so long that she kicked me out of her car and made me walk. So... All of which to say, the first two times that another car passed us on the road, in the cemetery, Sarah drove straight off the street. Here's what it sounded like. No, Sarah. (laughs) Sarah. (laughs) Sarah, now listen. 
none of the wheels of this car is actually in the street right now. Can't we just pretend like I did well? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? That's called panicking, isn't it? It's I saw the other car and I just wanted to be away from it. <laughs> what I don't understand is you're doing so well. Like, what do you have to panic about? Hitting it? Hitting it. I, well, I swerved away from it to protect them. That was actually a heroic move and not a <laughs> one. But I'm such a brand new driver that I have no habits. Five minutes after I'd lurched away from the truck, a Buick passed and I was compelled toward it like a magnet. Ira grabbed the wheel and swerved us away. So, so. <sighs> this is the thing that I never suspected. I thought it was just gonna be like step one, step two, step three, easy, learn to drive, no problem. I never realized that I was actually going to get scared. Oh, I looked down on Sarah's fears. I thought Sarah's fears were unfounded. Sarah's just a scaredy cat who, if she just thought things through like a rational human being... Sarah Val. Sarah Val. Yes, Ira. You have to admit that this was not so hard. After only an hour in the cemetery, you were ready to drive among the living. Pull up a little more. After this car, I want you to go. Now. Stay in your lane. Sarah looked to the left, looked to the right, and pulled into traffic down a narrow residential street. Now I brought a tape. Now really? they're out on the road. Mm -hmm. oh, follow, yeah. follow the curve here. One, two, three, four, five, six! Aw, oh, you remembered! <laughs> oh, faster miles an hour. Gonna drive past the stop and shop with the radio on. Sarah named her first book after a line from this song, a song all about driving. I thought it was all about listening to the radio. Anyway, the celebration turned out to be a little premature. The song was so blissfully distracting it was hard to keep pace with traffic. And four cars in a kind of convergence of hate honked a big howdy neighbor, welcome to the car class. It suddenly seemed like a very good idea to turn off the tape. Ooh. Turn off the stereo. Go to the right. Turn right. Turn okay. right. You have a green. All right. All right, everybody. Good. Pull over here. Pull and over? Stop. 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 Despite the occasional close call, it was a very good start. But our second lesson, the next day, led us to a side of our how-to that... I mean, I guess I should have seen this coming. After all, I did have the warning from the garage Cassandra's. The Bards of Stratford on Charles. The Oracle at Car Talk Plaza. Things in your nature that you heretofore have kept secret from the entire world will be divulged to this person. We got along okay on the first day. Day two began with this insane claim on the part of my friend Sarah Val. Insane? You claimed you hadn't driven. I just feel very removed from the whole thing. It wasn't driving, I was doing a story. But you drove for two hours. Yeah. But somehow you still think that you haven't driven. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I just don't, I mean, driving just isn't something I do.
I guess I could see that physically, yes, I was doing it, and I remember being there and all of it, but I just felt like that, the, like, that was my evil twin or something. <laughs> you know, yesterday when you and I were in the car, everything was just fine, right? Mm-hmm. It's just fine. We got along fine. It's only right now you're getting on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to say. You're getting on my nerves. You are. I, I just, I, I can't believe this. I mean, you, you could actually, you can actually drive. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is just very boy, but I feel like I showed you how to drive. And now you're turning around and you're telling me that it never happened. I feel like you have this kind of, you feel like you need to save me or something right now in a way that's bothering me. Well, no, it is that I feel like I need to save you. It's that I feel like, um, it's feeling like, you don't know, but I know. Like, I know better. It's a feeling of, I know better. Not a very good feeling to bring up between two people. <laughs> <laughs> I, not, only, not only is it a feeling of, I know better, it's a feeling that I know better what you need. Hmm. I don't want to drive. And since I have driven... I feel like I'm. I, this is sort of weird, but it sort of feels like I would imagine how it feels to um, you know, have an affair or <laughs> something. I feel like I've cheated on myself. <laughs> like you know that while you're doing it, that that that's what you're doing, and you can sort of you know feel yourself doing it. You can feel yourself touch this foreign object, <laughs> and then the next morning you just wish the whole thing had never happened. <laughs> You just hope, you know, no one ever finds out. An impasse. Any teacher will tell you, in any how-to situation, there's the actual learning part. And then, the trickiest part of all, motivation. I don't, I'm feeling a little deflated right now. Like, I, I need to be pumped up to go out. I need some, like, I mean, I need some fun encouragement to get back in the car again. Sarah knew how to drive. She just didn't remember why she should drive. So, I tried to evoke for her the picture of an America in which she could hit the open road. Like Dean Moriarty. Like driving is America. Like there's a fundamental idea of what it is to be an American that is bound up in every hit-the-road song and movie and story that either of us have ever loved, and probably you listening to my voice right now, in your car, listening to the radio that you also have loved. Like it's waiting out there like a killer in the sun, just one more chance we can make it if we run all of that. I went through all of it. Didn't work. She mentioned something about, well, about the highway within that I didn't completely understand. So I switched tactics. To feel the freedom of the road, you don't need Jack Kerouac. You just need Jack in the Box. Drive through. Drive through? Really? Let's go. Okay. I know most people think of the drive through as a visual and gastronomic blight, but my sister and I are obsessed with them. Our dad wouldn't go through drive throughs when we were growing up. I think they make him nervous, partly because he's deaf. He only approves of fast food when it's served on the fancy trays, 
So we think of drive-thrus as these objects of desire, full of thrills denied to us so cruelly for so long. So, uh, so what's it going to be then? Are you in the mood for Burger King or McDonald's or? I want to go to a place that's on the right side of the street. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have my... to make a left turn. Yeah. Three left turns later, we pull into the drive-through lane of a Burger King. You're doing great. Look, we're at the thing. Okay. Can I take your order, please? We'd like a Whopper and two Cokes and one chicken sandwich. You want two Cokes, a Whopper, and a chicken sandwich? Uh-huh. Would that be all, ma'am? Yep. Would you like any fries with that? One fry. Two Cokes, a Whopper, a chicken sandwich, and a medium fry, would that be all? Uh-huh. Okay, your total comes to 908, drive-thru, please. Okay. <laughs> He said drive through, please. To me. To me. No one's ever said that to me before. Those of you familiar with the customs of life here in the United States of America need no explanation of what happens next. We give the guy some money. He gives us food. Notice, notice, it's coming through the car window. Okay, there you go. Thank you. You're welcome, have a nice day. You too. We pulled into a parking space to eat. <laughs> I have to say, this is probably going to be the best crappy sandwich I've ever had in my life. <laughs> it was really a remarkable thing to see. Half an hour before this, she never wanted to drive ever again. Never wanted to join the part of our American culture that is behind the wheel. It was an epiphany, an actual epiphany, all taking place at a Burger King. She overcame the greatest fear of her life at a drive through window. So I'm going to ask you. Okay. How many times do you think you'd have to do drive through before it would stop giving you this unbelievable thrill? Ever. Ever? Man, Sarah. I love the way the guy looked at me and smiled and said, and said, you know, what do you say? Something stupid, playing like enjoy your meal. But I felt like he really meant it. (laughs) (laughs) And now, my fellow Americans. We have arrived at the drive off into the sunset portion of our story, even though it was the middle of the day, even though we were heading east. We went up Irving Park Road to the highway, Lakeshore Drive, the most beautiful street in America. Trees and old beautiful buildings, the whole city of Chicago to our right, Lake Michigan to our left, eight lanes of speeding cars. We merged. Now I'm feeling kind of giddy. But you know what? What? I feel like I'm driving. You do? Yes. I don't no you... alternate personalities are in charge of this vehicle at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. Okay, nice. Fo- follow like... that white car. Okay. Okay, what, whatever they do, you do. Anything you can do, I can do better. Anything better than you. 
From the neighborhood, take her to El Sabal to eat. If she's not, Wendy's will do. And after dinner, what to say when you see the sunset. And other how-tos, including how to value your own life. In a minute, from Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers and reporters and performers to tackle that theme. Today's program, how-to. What happens during a how-to? What are how-tos say about us? We have arrived at Act 2 of our program. Act 2. How to date a brown girl, black girl, white girl, or halfy. You know, one of the most common kinds of how-tos, going back to when they began, has always involved how to act to seem attractive to someone else. Well, in that genre, we offer this Story from Juno Diaz, a warning that some of this might not be suitable for younger listeners. Wait for your brother and your mother to leave the apartment. You've already told them that you're feeling too sick to go to Union City to visit that Thea who likes to squeeze your nuts. He's gotten big, she'll say. And even though your mom's knows you ain't sick, you stuck to your story until finally she said, Go ahead and stay, malcriado. Clear the government cheese from the refrigerator. If the girls from the terrace stack the boxes behind the milk. If she's from the park or Society Hill, hide the cheese in the cabinet above the oven, way up where she'll never see. Leave yourself a reminder to get it out before morning, or your moms will kick your ass. Take down any embarrassing photos of your family in the campo, especially the one with the half-naked kids dragging a goat on a rope leash. The kids are your cousins, and by now they're old enough to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Hide the pictures of yourself with an afro. Make sure the bathroom is presentable. Put the basket with all the crapped-on toilet paper under the sink. Spray the bucket with the Lysol, then close the cabinet. Shower, comb, dress. Sit on the couch and watch TV. If she's an outsider, her father will be bringing her, maybe her mother. Neither of them want her seeing any boys from the terrace. People get stabbed in the terrace. But she's strong-headed and this time will get her way. If she's a white girl, you know you'll at least get a hand job. The directions were in your best handwriting, so her parents won't think you're an idiot. 
Get up from the couch and check the parking lot. Nothing. If the girl's local, don't sweat it. She'll flow over when she's good and ready. Sometimes she'll run into her other friends and a whole crowd will show up at your apartment. And even though that means you ain't getting sh**, it will be fun anyway and you'll wish these people would come over more often. Sometimes the girl won't flow over at all and the next day in school she'll say sorry and smile and you'll be stupid enough to believe her and ask her out again. Wait and after an hour go out to your corner. The neighborhood is full of traffic. Give one of your boys a shout and when he says are you still waiting on that bitch say hell yeah. Get back inside. Call her house and when her father picks up ask if she's there. He'll ask who is this? Hang up. He sounds like a principal or a police chief. The sort of dude with a big neck who never has to watch his back. Sit and wait. By the time your stomach's ready to give out on you, a Honda or maybe a Jeep pulls in and out she comes. Hey, you'll say. Look, she'll say. My mom wants to meet you. She's got herself all worried about nothing. Don't panic. Say, hey, no problem. Run a hand through your hair like the white boys do, even though the only thing that runs easily through your hair is Africa. She will look good. The white ones are the ones you want the most, but usually the out-of-towners are black. Black girls who grew up with ballet and Girl Scouts who have three cars in their driveways. If she's a halfie, don't be surprised that her mother is white. Say hi. Her moms will say hi, and you will see that you don't scare her. Not really. She will say that she needs easier directions to get out, and even though she has the best directions in her lap, give her new ones. Make her happy. You have choices. If the girl's from around the way, take her to El Cibao for dinner. Order everything in your busted up Spanish. Let her correct you if she's Latina and amaze her if she's black. If she's not from around the way, Wendy's will do. As you walk to the restaurant, talk about school. A local girl won't need the stories about the neighborhood, but the other ones might. Supply the story about the loco who'd been storing canisters of tear gas in his basement for years. How one day the canisters cracked and the whole neighborhood got a dose of the military strength stuff. Don't tell her that your moms knew right away what it was, that she recognized its smell from the year the United States invaded your island. Hope that you don't run into your nemesis, Howie, the Puerto Rican kid with the two killer mutts. He walks them all over the neighborhood, and every now and then the mutts corner themselves a cat and tear it to shreds. Howie laughing as the cat flips up in the air, its neck twisted around like an owl, red meat showing through the soft fur. If his dogs haven't cornered a cat, he will walk behind you and ask, Hey, Junior, is that your new f Let him talk. Howie weighs about 200 pounds and could eat you if he wanted. At the field, he will turn away. He has new sneakers and doesn't want them muddy. If the girl's an outsider, she will hiss now and say, What a f***ing asshole. A homegirl would have been yelling back at him the whole time, unless she was shy. Either way, don't feel bad that you didn't do anything. Never lose a fight on your first date, or that will be the end of it. Dinner will be tense. You are not good at talking to people you don't know. A halfie will tell you that her parents met in the movement, will say, 
Back then, people thought it a radical thing to do. It will sound like something her parents made her memorize. Your brother once heard that one and said, Man, that sounds like a whole lot of Uncle Tomming to me. Don't repeat this. Put down your hamburger and say, It must have been hard. She will appreciate your interest. She will tell you more. Black people, she will say, treat me real bad. That's why I don't like them. You'll wonder how she feels about Dominicans. Don't ask. Let her speak on it, and when you're both finished eating, walk back into the neighborhood. The skies will be magnificent. Pollutants have made Jersey sunsets one of the wonders of the world. Point it out. Touch her shoulder and say, that's nice, right? Get serious. Watch TV, but stay alert. Sip some of the rum your father left in the cabinet, which nobody touches. A local girl may have hips and a thick ass, but she won't be quick about letting you touch. She has to live in the same neighborhood as you, has to deal with you being in her business. She might just chill with you and then go home. She might kiss you and then go, or she might, if she's reckless, give it up, but that's rare. Kissing will suffice. A white girl might just give it up right then. Don't stop her. She'll take her gum out of her mouth, stick it to the plastic sofa covers, and then we'll move close to you. You have nice eyes, she might say. Tell her that you love her hair, that you love her skin, her lips, because in truth you love them more than you love your own. She will say, I like Spanish guys, and even though you've never been to Spain, say, I like you. You'll sound smooth. You'll be with her until about 8.30, and then she'll want to wash up. In the bathroom, she will hum a song from the radio, and her waist will keep the beat against the lip of the sink. Imagine her old lady coming to get her. What she would say if she knew her daughter had just lain under you and blown your name, pronounced with her 8th grade Spanish, into your ear. While she's in the bathroom, call one of your boys and say, Lo hice, loco, or just sit back on the couch and smile. But usually, usually it won't work this way. Be prepared. She will not want to kiss you. Just cool it, she'll say. The halfie might lean back, breaking away from you. She will cross her arms, say, I hate my tits. Stroke her hair, but she will pull away. I don't like anyone touching my hair, she will say. She will act like somebody you don't know. In school, she is known for her attention-grabbing laugh as high and far-ranging as a gull, but here she will worry you. You will not know what to say. You're the only kind of guy who asks me out, she will say. You and the black boys. Say nothing. Let her button her shirt, let her comb her hair, the sound of it stretching like a sheet of fire between you. When her father pulls in and beeps, let her go without too much of a goodbye. She won't want it. During the next hour, the phone will ring. You will be tempted to pick it up. Don't. Watch the shows you want to watch without a family around to debate you. Don't go downstairs. Don't fall asleep. It won't help. Put the government cheese back in its place before your mother kills you. He's a 
Junior Diaz's story is in his book Drown. All that I have is a broken down chair. But I would gladly make him king on my throne. Don't be a square. Why don't you come over here? Together we would really be gone. Oh, he's got a fine friend frame. Act three. How to increase your value as a person. Well, you know, most how-tos make a promise. You're not just going to learn skills. You will be transformed. So putting together today's program, we thought, what would be the ultimate transformation? What how-to could actually increase the value of human life? And it turns out that we as a society have people whose job it is to think about this very question. And they turn out to be insurance adjusters. Insurance adjusters. When somebody dies, insurance adjusters review the facts of the case, consider how much juries usually pay for various kinds of lives and deaths when somebody dies and somebody else is to blame. And then the adjusters recommend how much the insurance company should settle for, what the life was worth. Adam Davidson put together this how-to on how to increase the value of your life. When I was seven, my mom told me about a guy who died because his car blew up. It was the manufacturer's fault, and the man's relatives sued and got about $300,000. I remember wondering about that number. I remember thinking if you were going to assign a number to a human life, it would have to be huge, at least a million. To my seven-year-old mind, a million seemed like the start of the really big numbers. The other day, I wanted to find out how much my life is worth. So I went to talk to this guy, George Karras, an adjuster in Merrillville, Indiana. He looked me over, asked me my stats, age, job, marital status. Right now, today, I'm willing to pay you $35,000. For my death? For your death, total. That's crazy. I'm, I'm worth more than... What do you think it's worth? My life, worth less than half a second of one commercial on Seinfeld. George explains it this way. I'm single, got no dependents, and as far as he's concerned, no one would be all that affected by my death. I argued with him, pointed out my parents need me, I make them laugh, I tease them in a way that nobody else can. How often do they see you? My mom sees me once a month, my dad every three months. Once a month and every three months. How close are you to them? Do you take them out for dinner? Do you always meet them on family holidays? Do you sit around the fire place with them at night and roast marshmallows. Those things are worth money? Absolutely. Loss of love and affection. In your case, there doesn't appear to be that strong uh, emotional relationship. Why not? I'm very close to my parents. You see your dad once every three months. Does he send you a picture in between so you remember what he looks like? Girlfriends don't count. They don't count? Absolutely not. I see my girlfriend every day, and we're madly in love. If you love her that much, marry her. Show her the respect and quit shacking up and marry her, and then she'll count. There's no government chart or general agreement on how much people are worth. If you die and it's someone else's fault, you could be worth as little as a few hundred bucks or as much as a quarter of a billion dollars to your survivors. To come up with a dollar amount for a person's life, insurance adjusters add fixed costs, medical bills, funeral expenses, to the more intangible costs, things like loss of comfort, love, affection, guidance. 
Obviously, figuring out the intangible values is more difficult, but there are basic principles that adjusters in the courts go by. The more people you have dependent on you, and the more people you affect positively, the more you're worth. So, if you want to increase your value, here's how: join community groups, tutor some poor kids. Marrying your girlfriend or boyfriend adds a couple million dollars to your value, and while you're at it, have sex with them a lot. Losing the pleasure of sex with you can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Remember, girlfriends don't count. Have a child; that'll add another two million. A second or third or fourth child doesn't add anything. A college degree usually increases your value by millions. Same for a high-paying professional job. But if you really want to go for the hard cash, the thing to do is suffer. Nothing gets a jury going like misery. Another adjuster, Sorel Pavitsky, explained that to really increase your value after a tragic accident, don't die, live, but be severely injured. Yeah, right.、Um, brain dead or、um, paraplegic quad quads. Those really demand a lot of money because there's so much future care involved in that. Yeah, the quad is worse because you are really struggling each and every single day. To increase your value, I would probably say burn. That's the worst injury. Our burns. Why is that? Because there's no relief from that pain. I mean, they put cream on them, but there's really no relief. There's nothing they can do for you. So I would say burns over most of your body would be the best way to increase your value. The best way to increase your value. There's so much pain and suffering with that. And then the next thing would be to be brain dead. An insurance adjuster told me about a young guy driving a truck full of tires. He crashed. The car caught fire, and the tires pinned him inside. He slowly burned to death, begging for his life. He was a menial worker, single, no kids. Normally, the adjuster told me he wouldn't be worth thirty grand, but his parents got a tremendous settlement because of his suffering. And it struck me, as I heard this. That in financial terms, the last ten minutes of this man's life were worth more than the whole twenty-five years that came before. Anyone who looks at this stuff realizes pretty quickly that there's something irrational in all these schemes. For example, the single most important factor in determining your worth is not who you are, what you've done, who you love. It's the state or county where you die. In general, if you die in a big city, you'll be worth a lot more than if you die in a rural farming community. Juries in big cities are just more generous. Adjusters say if you're gonna die, die in Chicago, New York, preferably the Bronx, L.A., Detroit. Florida is pretty good. Avoid New England, especially Maine. Stay away from the Rocky States. Don't die in Utah. You definitely don't want to die anywhere you can see the stars at night. George Caras, the adjuster in rural Indiana, told me I would be lucky to get fifty grand for my life. But Sorrell, who works in Chicago's Cook County, knew her juries would be more sympathetic. You have this future potential. God only knows where you could have gone、uh, with your degree and being a、uh, freelance uh, person, you know, in communications. The whole world is open to you, and all of that is closed because you've died. So. I would say that for sympathy factor, 
Um, it's possible in Cook County to, to get a million dollar or better verdict. A million dollars, the price I dreamed of when I was seven. I asked Sorrell what I could do to increase my value even above that, and what she said kind of shocked and disappointed me. Essentially, she told me I would have to reinvent myself. In particular, I would have to spend more time outside. It's a peculiar quirk of our legal system that people who enjoy outdoor activities are worth more than people who just stay inside and watch TV. Okay, here's what you should do to add value to your life, if you can. If you enjoy um, swimming or sunsets or gardening or any of those things that create beauty in the world, try to do that because that gives you added value. Here's one thing I was thinking of. Like, um, I like to read sort of obscure plays. I like to read, like, you know, sort of historical plays, which I'd imagine most people really could care less about. What about people who have, let's say there's a guy, you could say he watches TV all the time, but what he's doing is he's watching, you know, videotapes of incredible foreign films. Is that going to... Impact the verdict? No, no, I don't think so. See, the reason being, so everybody watches TV and everybody reads and everybody, I don't know if it's necessarily the content that's important. The person that we're talking about who's involved in the community, who is very active in sports and, and loves sunsets and all that kind of stuff, he, he gives more to the world than the person who maybe watches historical plays. You know what I mean? It's not content. It's the whole value of the person's life, what they've done with it how involved they are. That gives it the greater value. Right. Because the things that I feel add value to my life as I experience it, for me, because mm -hmm. I'm not much of an outdoors person, mm -hmm. what I feel adds the richness to my life personally is it really is reading. I mean, it's mm -hmm. reading right. literature, reading um, nonfiction, and seeing f wonderful films. I mean, that's something mm -hmm. I really get a lot of, of deep pleasure but, but I don't know that that adds value to your life because we all do it. I love reading. I love going to movies. That's something you do personally. It, you're, no one's dependent on you to do that. Um, it's just something you yourself are being enriched from. And I don't know that that would have a great deal of value. So, so the jocks who I hated in high school and felt were worth less than I was. <laughs> Turns <laughs> out they're worth, worth more. Yeah. We look to systems of rules, to how-to schemes, to create order out of situations that inherently defy rationality. And it always amazes me to think that when this particular system does its job, a check is cut, it has a dollar amount on it, and that's supposed to be the value of somebody's life. I talked to one adjuster who said that when someone loses a loved one, they don't want money. They want to get rid of their pain. They want that person back. They're angry, and they want whoever caused the death to suffer. But the only thing we can give them is money. That's all we have. That's all we can do. Don't put no headstone on my grave Well, this, of course, is the point in our program when we do the credits, and we thought as part of that we would have one last how-to. 
And to, and to help with that how-to, uh, I'd like to welcome to the program my dad, Barry Glass, now a certified public accountant in Baltimore, uh, but uh, in his younger days uh, was a disc jockey in college radio and commercial radio. And dad? Yes. Now, when you and I have talked about the show, you've had a particular criticism of the way I do the show. Well, it was a constructive criticism. Let me put it that way. Let me start by being defensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a constructive criticism. That's right. Which is why I invited you here today. And knowing from uh, past experience when I used to have to do things like closing credits, they get to be very uh, mundane and things you do all the time. And sometimes you just, you know, roll right through them without a lot of emotion or maybe without sounding like a lot of caring. And that was my criticism to you. Well, just so people at home can hear, let's just, let's just play uh, some credits from a recent show so they can hear what you're talking about. Our program produced today by Julie Snyder and myself with Elise Spiegel and Nancy Updike, senior editor Paul Tuff, contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and consigliere Sarah Val. Production help from Rachel Day and Sir Davenport. Now, Dad, explain to the non-professionals, what, what am I doing wrong there? Well, you're just not giving it enough importance. You're anxious to beat the clock or something like that or to get to a cup of coffee or <laughs> I don't know what. Yeah. So, Dick, so give me some pointers. Give me some how-to. Well, I think you just ought to take your time and not rush through it so quickly and uh, try to give uh, a feeling for the importance of the people who uh, make the show go beside yourself. Okay. Well, why, why don't you and I split off the credits between us? Why, uh, you, you have a copy of the script there in front of you. I do. You're, you're speaking to me, I should say, by the way, from the studios of WGHU in Baltimore, the public radio affiliate there. Um, and uh, why don't you just start the credits? Our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and Ira Glass with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder. Senior editor, Paul Tuff. Contributing editors, Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Sarah Val. Production help today from Rachel Day and Sayini Davenport. To buy a cassette of this program, call us at WBEZ here in Chicago. The phone number, 312-832-3380. You see that? I put in all this positive. Is that good? Yeah, wonderful. 312-832-3380. Our email address, radio at com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. Special thanks today to John Connors, Nancy Armstrong, Bill Warner, Richard Klein, and Neil Sacamano. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who reminds you, Don't die in Utah. Back next week with more stories of This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. I'm Barry Glass. Don't drive like my father. Please don't drive like my son. And don't drive like me. PRI Public Radio International